Good afternoon, brethren. I'm glad to see a number of you here because we're having the summer time now and people are gone and several, as you know, are going out to the field to preach and other activities. God has certainly been blessing the work and we're grateful for that. And right here, I should add, we certainly had an excellent sermonette. I enjoyed Mr. Hart's sermonette very much and really enjoy that ladies' group that sings together. They seem to sing very well as a team and uh, very, very beautiful. So we appreciate that and thank you very much. I want to thank all of you, brethren, for you brethren here and you brethren around the world for supporting the work as you have with your prayers, your tithes, your offerings. And your encouragement. We've had a great deal of that. We're very grateful for the growth that we've had, the wonderful response to the telecast, the growth in the Internet, the financial growth that helps us increase the power of the work. And we are being able to do more, and we're going to have a great deal more impact. I mean, a great deal more impact, it looks like, by this time next year, even by the end of this year. But I'll say certainly by the end of next, by this time next year, I think you'll see a tremendous growth between now and, let's say, next Pentecost. And we thank God for that. Thank all of you who are helping, and we deeply appreciate your prayers. We appreciate your prayers for these people. Mr. Jack Lowe, which was announced down near Atlanta, our pastor down there who just lost his wife. And I didn't know when these, that these situations would come up when I first planned this sermon. I've been thinking about this sermon for a few weeks. But this is an anniversary for me. Thirty-six years ago this morning, my older daughter, Elizabeth, came upstairs to my bedroom, as I'd asked her to, and woke me up. I asked her if her mother, who was in kind of a swoon, like a coma, but not quite, who had cancer, to wake me because I had heard that there were times when a person was dying or in a coma that they might wake up briefly and be able to talk to you. And I thought she could sort of maybe have a few moments of recognition there, And she was kind of twitching, and Elizabeth came up and said, Daddy, I think Mother's getting ready to die. She's twitching. Come on down. So I jumped up, got in a robe, and came down. And she died right there about 5.15 a.m. on June 16th, back in 1976. So that was 36 years ago. God tries and tests us in many ways. And you all know that we're going to have a lot more trials and tests. And we have to understand that that's part of life. We're here to be tried and tested in one sense. We're here to learn lessons for all eternity. And we've got to learn those lessons. And when I lost my wife of 20 years and seven months, and we'd had a very good marriage, I'm very grateful for that. We never even mentioned the word divorce as though it might occur between us. I was devastated, and I've told you about that. I was deeply, deeply hurt. A young man swooped out on the freeway a few weeks after she died and sort of came out from the exit entrance to the freeway and started to hit me almost. He just came whizzing by, and I kind of stepped on the, I'll catch up with him and bump him or something, and after about three seconds, my brain came in. I thought, well, so what? My life is over and doesn't make any difference. But it didn't take long. I thought, no, I've got four children. I'm a minister of Jesus Christ. I can't do something like that. I'm just mad and upset and hurt. I've got to get control. 
And we all have to get control and we have to go on. So about a year and a half later, God gave me another wife, a beautiful young widow down from Bakersfield. Some of you know her. She's sitting right over there. (laughs) And she was one of the most beautiful human beings I'd ever seen, just extremely beautiful. And God gave her to me. And he, he filled in that way a terrible void in my life at that time. And I thank him for that to this day because she's been a wonderful help and an encouragement and so on. So God does take care of us in the end. I know that he will take care of all of us when that comes up. But it makes us appreciate marriage. And I hope all of you who still have your mates will deeply appreciate that husband or that wife because they could be taken from you at any time. As I've said, I used to feel sorry for older people. One of the older brethren, Mr. Hoyle, died, and I was kind of saying, well, that's strange. He's the first one that died back in the early years. No one ever seemed to die. Finally, Mr. Hoyle died at the young age of 84 years. (laughs) So he was about two years older than me. And, of course, I realized after a while, no, we don't all live the world till we're 100. But then later on, my friend Richard David Armstrong was killed in a, re- in a wreck, as you know, at age 29. And that made me get my perspective. You, your life can be cut off at age 29 or any time, and you don't know. We need to walk by faith each day. We need to love our husband and love our wife, love our friends, love our family each day. Love them while you can. You might not always have them. Because a good marriage is a wonderful thing and a beautiful thing. It's a gift from God. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman, not a man and another man. And God shows that clearly in the Bible, and I'll cover that a little bit. Most of us in the church don't have a problem with that. And yet, as you know, that's even being countenanced now by the President of the United States, who says that's no problem for a man to marry another man. And many of our state legislatures are beginning to vote that sort of thing in. It's amazing how the younger generation can go so far, so fast, in a way that blows the mind of many of us who are older. They'd have been run out of town if that had happened even 30 or 40 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago. But they're allowing that kind of thing now. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman before God. It is never to be watered down. It is never to be tampered with, and we need to really understand that. It's something that comes from God. Jesus Christ talks about marriage, so bring your Bible open now and turn with me. I'm going to read you some from the Word of God. The Bible is the mind of God. The Bible tells us what God thinks about these things. I don't care what some state legislature thinks or some liberal judge. They're going to stand before the judge of heaven some of these days. And they're going to be shaken when they realize how wrong, how terribly wrong they have been in passing these laws or countenance these abominable things that are going on in our society. We need to have righteous indignation about that. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel will be crying aloud. God says, cry aloud, lift up your voice like a trumpet and show my people their sins. And we need to help this world realize that as best we can and as strong as we can in the right way. Back in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3, 
the Pharisees came to Jesus testing him. So they were always trying to put Jesus Christ on the spot and saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason, just to put her away for whatever? And he answered and said, have you never read that he who made them made them male and female? Notice that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female. That's pretty plain. And he said, for this reason, get it, for the reason that they were made different, for the reason that they were made male and female, that is the reason that marriage exists. Marriage does not exist between a man and another man. Marriage does not exist between a woman and another woman. Marriage exists because God made us male and female. For this reason, then, he said, uh, God told them to leave, a man to leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They become one person in that sense, one flesh in marriage. So then there are no more two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, not the state of California, not the state of North Carolina, or the government of Germany or Britain or anywhere else, but what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Man is not to separate or put asunder in any way what God has joined. They said, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, you are carnal, you are selfish, and you are going to be going around with different women having different affairs and babies out of wedlock and causing confusion. Little children would not have parents. Because of that, God allowed you to switch, and he allowed some men to have three or four wives. He allowed that. They were a carnal nation cut off. They did not have God's spirit. He allowed that, permitted it. But I say to you, whoever divorces, well, he said from the beginning it was not so. That was not God's original intent. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, or the Greek word here is porneia, which means, of course, sexual intercourse before marriage or repeated instances of adultery or harlotry, gross immorality, in other words, commits adultery. And, of course, God later shows through Paul desertion by the unconverted mate and so on. But basically, except for those reasons, you cannot divorce and remarry. So God commands us not to separate the union that God has made. Why? Well, let's turn back and begin to understand that more fully. Turn back to the beginning, if you would. Let's go right back where it all started, to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. And let's read here in verse 26. As you read over chapter 1, you'll see how God made the heavens and the earth, or recreated them, and put on, the, them, on them the animals and all of the things. And then, verse 26, God said, Let us, God the Father and God the Word, the spokesman, the Logos, who became Jesus Christ, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over all these other creatures. Even though the lions and tigers and so on are bigger than we are, we have dominion over them. They don't put us in cages. We put them in cages. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. So men and women are created in the image of God. 
Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Well, men marrying other men cannot be fruitful and multiply. No way. They cannot have children. They cannot do what God told a husband and wife to do. It's impossible. So I think we understand that. But you know, brethren, as you brethren, you older brethren, look around, you see young people sitting around. And this world, through the television and the radio and magazines and newspapers and political speeches and the Internet, is just pumping and pumping and pumping these other ideas into the minds of our young people. They have all these so-called important people indicating, well, there's no problem, there's no problem, they're not hurting anyone. What do you mean they're not hurting anyone? God made a man to be a man. He made to be a man to be like God and to be a leader and to think like God in that way and, and so on. And a man, a male, to be the head of his family and learn lessons in that way. And a female to be his help and his partner in doing, in running the family, in organizing the whole world. Each of them has different roles that are given them by God Almighty. And man marrying another man never learns that kind of lesson. And they would never be able to reproduce. They would never be able to develop the kind of character, the kind of potential, the kind of leadership that they could marry, have if they were properly married to someone of the opposite sex. There's no way. God created women to be absolutely different. They're beautiful. And men know that they have beautiful, lovely figures and they want make a young man want to hug them and kiss them. Isn't that awful? <laughs> no, that's what God intended. He specifically designed that. He's not bashful about that. He's the one that made every facet of our human body. He wants us to love one another. He just wants the kind of sexual love that he describes to be in marriage for people that have a binding commitment and they can have children together, and those children then can have a solid, stable home because their parents are loyal to be each, each other in that way. But God is not bashful about sex. God created those differences, and they're very beautiful. Of course, the French sometimes are a little bit too sexy, but they have the saying, most of you know, Viva la difference, long live the difference. And even though I'm 82, I still feel that way. <laughs> long live the difference. So let's not be ashamed of that. God made women to be beautiful to a man, and man can be handsome or attractive in some way. I don't know why, because I can never marry, you know what I mean. There's a difference. Each of us attracted to the strengths or the beauty or the capacity or the wisdom of the other, the opposite sex. And God wants it to be that way and made it that way, and that is a beautiful thing, a clean thing, a right thing. We need to each learn the lessons. The idea of a man marrying a man perverts the man's mind. It perverts his emotions. It perverts his body because God not, did not create a man. I'm just talking to you younger people. Most older people have figured that out. But you younger people have been had that pumped into your brain. I don't want to have a sex education class here today or embarrass some of the old ladies who might be embarrassed. I hope you wouldn't all be embarrassed. But... A lot of young people don't seem to think, what does that man's love for another man entail? How did they use their bodies to get sexual release? It's a perversion. They're perverting the human body. They're perverting the human mind. It's going to bring consequences to tear up parts of their body. They're being used for something God Almighty never intended. The whole thing is a perversion. It's perverting their emotions. 
is perverting the fact that a man ought to think like a man and act like a man and be a leader in his family. How can a man be the leader in his family in the way he ought to be if there's another man there that's supposed to be his wife? The whole thing is unbelievably perverted. And if it carried on to its opposite, obvious end, if all men started to do that, which Satan would like, then Satan would have achieved his ultimate purpose, the extermination, the extermination of the human race. There would be no more human beings on the earth because men by themselves cannot reproduce and women by themselves cannot reproduce. So we have to understand that, how perverted this thing of homosexuality is. It's not some little thing. It's a horrible thing, a perversion of the body, the mind, the emotions of human beings in a way the Creator God, who made us male and female, never, never, ever intended. And I hope you young people here and around the world as you hear this can realize that. Don't let Satan the devil pump all this garbage, this intellectual rubbish into your mind that it doesn't make any difference. It makes all the difference in the world if you are a homosexual or if you're not and learn to have the normal emotion that you ought to have in a right, clean way for the opposite sex. Back in Malachi, God describes marriage here, and this is more of the mind of God. As I say, the Bible, of course, is the mind of God in print. Turn to the book of Malachi, if you would now, near the end of your Old Testaments here. Malachi chapter 2, if you would. Malachi chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading uh, in this chapter here in verse uh If I can read my own writing, verse 13, Malachi chapter 2 and verse 13, God says, this is the second thing you do. He he was condemning Israel. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. He does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? People in the Protestant churches They have all kinds of troubles and so on, frankly, far more than we do when you understand it in the Catholics. And they're going to say that as these horrible plagues come on them. The tribulation and the second last plagues. Why is God allowing this? He says, for this reason, because God has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Marriage is a covenant freely taken between two human beings before God so that God makes them one flesh. And as they think about marriage, and as you young people think about marriage, I hope you will think about family. Marriage is not just a sexual outlet. Sorry to be plain, but we've got to be plain about it. That's not the only purpose or even necessarily the main purpose. It is a purpose, but man is not good by himself. Marriage is to build a family. And when you think about a beautiful young woman or attractive young woman you'd like to marry or a handsome or capable man that you'd like to marry, you young women think about family. Do you want this man to be the father of your children? Do you men want this woman to be the mother of your children? Is she similar? Is she of the same race? Is she of the same general background? They don't have to be perfect but the same general educational, social background so that you can get along, so that you could identify. 
and you can build together a family, that union is going to produce hopefully two or three or four children. And in tomorrow's world, most of the families will probably be at least four to eight children. The great boxing champion, Muhammad Ali, was asked by a smart aleck English woman reporter over there while I was in Britain. She said, well, Muhammad Ali, she said, or Mr. Ali, whatever she called him, she said, a lot of big athletes get themselves a white trophy wife. Are you going to get yourself a white wife? He says, no. He said, I want my children to look like me. That's an interesting thought. (laughs) I want my children to look like me. And so let's understand that, brethren. Some of us are partly mixed up. I'm partly mixed up, as I've said, so I'm not trying to look down on anyone that's partly mixed. I'm partly German, partly Cherokee, Indian, and so on. Sir Winston Churchill, the man of the century, was one-eighth Iroquois Indian through his beautiful mother, Jerry Jerome, who was Jenny, I mean, who was from America. But nevertheless, we are to try to get someone close that is part of a family can build the kind of family that God would want us to build. And then we need to think about family in this woman's or this man's personality and character. Are they not just sexually or romantically attractive, but do they have the right personality? Do they have the right character? Can they build the right kind of family that we want to have and that God would want us to have? Think about family, 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 your children, your grandchildren, your extended family. How will they fit into your family and how will the the succeeding family members uh, interact and work out as an honor to God? We need to think about all these things. How can we honor God? And what we do, everything that we do, and that's very, very important, and God wants us to do that. So anyway, she's your wife by covenant, but did he not make one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? Why did God make man and woman one? He seeks a godly offspring. Oh, the main reason Malachi gives under God's inspiration is that God wants us to marry to have godly offspring. Children that are right and that are godly. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, your attitude, and let none of you deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. God hates divorce. He doesn't like that at all. Brethren, I think you all know this, and I'll come to it later in Ephesians chapter 5. But marriage is a type of the relationship of Jesus Christ and the church. It's to picture an everlasting love and stability and loyalty, loyalty, loyalty unto death do us part. We're to give our lives to God forever. And so God wants us to learn that lesson in marriage. So God is very much against this idea of divorcing someone. You're to show loyalty to God. You're to show loyalty to your mate. My wife has been loyal to me now. For three and three-fourths years with my stroke, where I have a hard time getting around. Recently, her cancer has come back on her, and I need to be loyal to her and helpful to her. And each of us intends to be loyal to our mate until death does us part. I'm committed to that, and I know Cheryl is committed to that. That's the way we are. That's the way we've got to be. It is just we have to be that way. I want to be that way. And God wants us to be that way. Think about that. Everlasting loyalty to your husband or wife 
until death does you part. So it's a type of Christ in the church. You're to learn that type of loyalty to your husband or wife, for he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, with wrong, evil thoughts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Don't deal treacherously in any way. Having some kind of affair, even though it's a mental affair, may not have gotten into physical yet. Don't have a mental affair, an emotional affair, or a physical affair against the husband or wife that God has given you. You're to have absolute love and loyalty in your mind and heart. That's why Jesus Christ said to a man, and certainly the principle involves a woman, he that looks on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery in his heart. So if you're having a mental affair, thinking about some other woman, that is spiritual adultery. That's what it is, adultery in your mind and heart. That's why that is bad. Because then if the situation occurs where it's very easy, then that physical or mental adultery could very easily slip over into physical adultery, little adultery. And don't think it can't. I've been in the ministry now 60 years. I've been in the, I was ordained six months later, but I've actually been acting as a minister. Sixty years ago this month, I was the leader on a nationwide baptizing tour, leading out Burke McNair all over the United States and up into Canada. And as the leader, I was deciding who should be baptized and who should not, and laying hands on them along with Burke McNair, asking God's Holy Spirit. We were certainly acting ministers of Jesus Christ. If we weren't, we should have been there. We were acting as ministers, so I've been in that job for 60 years, counseling people all over the United States and Canada and all over the British Isles and so on. And I've talked to many people. Mental adultery leads to physical adultery, and all our ministers know that. They've heard the stories. They've seen people cry and tell how they cried themselves to sleep sometimes later, how they found their mate had been committing adultery on them. It tore them up. They thought they had a loving, warm relationship that would always laugh. They could trust this one other human being totally. And when you break that trust, it's awful. And it is awful before God Almighty, too. He does not appreciate that. He will take your eternal life if you do that and don't bitterly repent of it. So you better not get started, or you might not be able to repent. You might do it willfully or get in the habit and not stop. Adultery is punished by death. The wages of sin is death, capital sin. That's what it is. One of the great big ten sins, adultery, in your mind or in your heart. So don't let that attitude creep into your mind, and don't be a part of breaking up in a marriage by what you're doing to lead someone else on. And that makes you equally guilty. Remember, God Almighty tells back in Romans here about the homosexuals. I don't have that in my notes, but I think it might be helpful to refer to that as a matter of principle. It talks about these people who are bike batters, haters of good, and so on. And in sexual immorality, Romans chapter 1, verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Adultery, homosexuality, all these things he's describing, they who practice these things, the apostle Paul was inspired to tell us, are worthy of death. Not only those who who, who do the same, but also who approve of those who practice them. 
those who approve of homosexuality, those who approve of, 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 of adultery and murder and all these things he's been listing, they have the attitude that unless repented would bring the wages of sin in God's kingdom, in God's judgment. So we have to understand that it's a very serious thing in the mind of God. God does not mess around. This is one of the big ten we're talking about here, one of the ten commandments. So we do want to take it very, very seriously indeed. And I hope that we all will. And yet in the right way, we can take delight in that God has given us and made us male and female. Be grateful for that. Enjoy the difference. Love each other. Have friends of the opposite sex in the right way, but not ever flirty, flirty, or getting too close in that type of way. And friends all through God's church as part of a family. And enjoy the fact that God has given us a family, an extended family, which we should enjoy and appreciate the difference between our the two sexes that God has made. God himself is building a family, and of course marriage pictures the family of God. So in a family, we have to learn lessons, and God wants us to learn those lessons in marriage. Turn back now to Ephesians, if you would, brethren, the book of Ephesians, and I'm going to begin reading in chapter 4. Ephesians 4, and let's begin reading here in verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. What's he talking about? Well, most of you know that. I know when things got started and the work began to go down before Mr. Armstrong died, even in Pasadena. In the locker room, there were sort of semi-dirty jokes starting to be told. And some of them were not just semi-dirty. They got worse as it went along. You know, some of them were very clever. And they had some very clever personalities telling those jokes with good personality. They knew how to tell them. Does that make it right? No. The jokes were taking away from the purity of marriage, the purity of God's intended use for sex, taking away from the dignity of women and the bodies of human females, putting a clever twist on all of that that makes it nasty. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking, evil speaking about God's work, evil speaking about God himself, evil speaking about God's ministers, evil speaking about others in the church, or nasty evil speaking, all kinds of evil speaking. Don't let that kind of evil speaking be around. Put it away from you with all malice, all kinds of hate and resentment, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. So if we're to be kind, merciful, tender-hearted to one another, how much more should we be kind, merciful, and tender-hearted to our husband or our wife, if you see what I mean? Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children." The Greek word here the, in the New King James is followers, but the Greek word means imitators. Be imitators of God. Be like God. Back in First uh, Peter 1, verse 15, God tells us, Be ye holy, for I am holy. 
God is reproducing himself. He wants us to be like he is in all these ways of our lives. And walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given himself for us as an offering for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication, again, this word fornication can mean all kinds of sexual immorality, and it's a riddle intent, and uncleanness, that would certainly involve homosexuality, uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as it is fitting for saints. Don't let that even be named among you, that you would be starting to get into that kind of perversion. Neither filthiness, nor foolish jesting, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For know this, that no fornicator, unclean person, who's in a perversion, sexual perversion, or whatever, or covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. They won't be there. They just won't be there. But notice now, it goes on in verse 21. He talks about submitting to one another in the fear of God. All of us in the church are in a large family. We're the begotten family of God, and we should try to learn to submit to one another in the fear of God, to try to learn from each other and be kind to each other in every way we can. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's a command from God through his apostle written in the Bible. My wife and I were talking this morning about the sermon, and she says, Rod, she's thinking an awful lot of young women have had all this stuff pumped into them, this women's lib thing, and they don't know how to be submissive to a man. They just won't be submissive. They want to argue with their husbands. They want to talk back. They want to do their own thing and so on. I'm not saying all you young women are like that. I just say most of you are not here in this room. I know that. I see some of you and know you. But that's a general tendency of your generation. You know that. You've got to fight that. You've got to fight extra hard because your generation has this attitude that's been infused in you through this world, through constant references to this type of thing on television programs and motion pictures and now the Internet and so forth, showing smart aleck women talking back to their husband, women running things and men being put down, put down, made fun of constantly. Submit to your own husbands. How? As to the Lord. Sounds strong. It's not my idea, ladies. It's been here in the Bible all the time, as you know. Try to submit to your husband as to the Lord. He's not perfect, but he's in the family, the leader, and you should submit to him as to the Lord. And the only time you don't submit to him is if he tells you to do something that is directly, I don't mean some way off little thing you try to twist it around, but directly contrary to the law of God. Where God does tell us, you know, in his word back in Acts, the apostle said we must obey God rather than man. They were telling the physical authorities that. Submit to your husband, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. So it's a type, an exact type of God in the church, and God wants to learn, have us learn those lessons in marriage. And he is Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husband in everything. So they are to be the head of the family and how you train the children. They're to be the head of the family and how they manage the family finances. They're to be the head of the family and making all major decisions. In our family, 
I have not just let, but asked my wife to take charge. She's had a little harder time recently, but she's been doing most of it anyway, to pay all the normal bills and household bills and guide the repairs of the house. She's better at that than I am, frankly, to figure out what needs to be done to the refrigerator, the roof, and all kinds of things. She comes from that kind of background where her father and brothers were into, had their own welding shop and knew how to fix things. And she's better at that. So I've turned that over to her. But he's not doing, she's doing it under my overall direction. But she's able to run the house and do the normal shopping and, and running even the people to come and fix the house. And she'll often tell them to fix things better than they, they don't even know that they ought to do some things. And she'll tell them how to do it. It's amazing. But at any rate, she's able to do that and pay all the normal household bills. And the only bills I pay are the tithes and offerings and my big American Express bill. It's not always so big, but it's a a bill that where we eat out or go on trips, I want to be sure what my bill is because I'm the one that usually ran up that bill. So I pay one or two of those bills, but she pays all the others. So she's able to manage a lot and have a lot to do, but it's still under my overall direction, if you follow me. I'm to be the leader, and she wants me to be the leader. Most of the time, there's sometimes, of course, everybody doesn't like every single leadership thing her husband may have. That's human. And we husbands don't always like every single thing our wife does either. We're all human. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Love is outflowing concern. You want to protect her financially physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, to where you watch over her. You try to be sure that she is able to get enough food and enough exercise and that she's able to have a change of pace and have a good life. Take her out. Make her life full in every way you can. She's part of you. Help her to have a full life. Be grateful to God that God has given you a lovely companion, you men with wives. And that is a tremendous blessing You would never have the complete life and balance unless you had a wife. And God says that. It's not good for man to be alone. So be thankful and love her. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Most of you love your finger. If you hit your finger with a hammer, your whole body goes into action. Your eyes bulge out. Your head lurches forward. You may yell. Your back bends over. (laughs) You know what I mean? Your whole body is very concerned for your finger. You need to be very even more concerned for your wife because she is part of you. She is part of you, and deeply think about that and all the ramifications of that. He who loves his wife loves himself. So this is a big lesson that God wants us to learn. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and bone. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It's not a mystery about the physical marriage. Nevertheless... Let each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself, a deep, profound, outflowing concern, and let the wife see that she respects, or as the old, some of the old King James type translation says, reverence, a deep respect 
And ladies, you need to show that respect. That's godly. I know that's not modern, but try to show that respect to your husband. We, we don't try to go around commanding that all the time, but the Bible does. So we're not helping you by watering it down. You might think I would show more love if I wouldn't come out so strong with what God says. But I would love you less. I would love you less if I did not do that. You need God's Word. You need the strongest emphasis on those things that are basic that will help you gain eternal life, everlasting life in the kingdom of God. So try to take it in that way. I hope all of us can understand that. Yet this world is saturated constantly with the SBS, Satan's Broadcasting System, as I call it. Not CBS, but SBS. And he's broadcasting these attitudes to young women. Well, don't let your husband push around. Tell him where to get off at. Do your own thing. You're just the same. We had an article yesterday in the paper, I think it was in the local paper, about the women pressing to get in the Army Rangers. And there was this extra, this uh, uh, ex-ranger who had been an Army Ranger for 11 years. That's the elite corps of the Army, you know. They're the ones who do commando-type things. They're like the Navy SEALs who got in and rescued, uh, or not rescued, but uh, got rid of Osama bin Laden and so on. They have to be in absolute top shape. I couldn't be in that. There may not be a man here who could be in that, frankly, not trying to make you men feel bad. Some few younger men might be able to be that if you went on a very rigid training course for your body for the next year, then go through their training course beside that. They have to be strong, alert, to climb ropes, to jump over high things, to go on and on and on, even under stress. All kinds of things that the normal body cannot put up with. And women can't do that. And this man brought out that if they lower the standard, then they're not going to be like the rangers we have today. They're not going to be like that. Why do they keep pressing in that, pressing in that to want to be like that? Satan, the devil, wants to stir up women. We're all the same. We're all the same. And we're to do the things that men do. No, you're not. God did not make you to do those things. You're not going to be happy in the end doing everything a man can do. And a man is not going to be happy uh, trying to do things women ought to do either. It's not going to work out. It is not God's plan. So try to understand that. We're to try to be a real man or a real woman the way God wants us to be. But at any rate, we have this society pumping, pumping this stuff out all the time that there's no difference between males and females and there's no difference between all kinds of situations. I won't go into the other part of it. Back in 1 Peter, if you would turn there, in 1 Peter chapter 3, brethren, turn with me at this point to 1 Peter and let's turn now at this point to chapter 3 in 1 Peter. Here God inspired Peter to talk about marriage in verse 1. He says, Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. So Peter wrote about it also, that even if some do not obey the word, they without the word... And here the Greek word can be translated without or apart from it. In other words, not just in the church, but apart from your preaching or talking to them, apart from the word, may be won by the conduct of the wives. They may not be in the church, but they may be learn to respect you because of your godly fear, your godly submission, your godly kindness, your willingness to be submissive and to help this man, to love him, to take care of him, 
He may have been taking care of you, financially supporting you, giving you a home, giving you food for 20 or 30 years. And all of a sudden you decide you're not going to love him anymore. You're going to leave him. Why? God doesn't tell you to do that unless there's been just continual adultery or some really big thing. You know, think about it. But you may win your unconverted mate apart from the word by your conduct when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. And the fear, as you know, brethren, in the Bible does not mean a fear of a monster. It means deep reverence, a deep respect. Do not let your beauty be thine outward adorning of arranging the hair or wearing gold or putting on fine apparel. Don't be constantly primping yourself and seeing how beautiful you can be outwardly. That's a mistake, frankly. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the uncorruptible ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit. God wants a woman to have a gentle and a quiet spirit, not to be willing to, yuck, this is what I say. Don't you tell me that anymore. Just yell right back at her husband. That's an abomination to God when you look at all these examples in the Bible. Would you talk to Christ that way? Well, your husband's in the place of Christ. You're to submit to your husband as unto Christ. So learn that lesson. Because many have had that problem in this society, of course. For in this manner, the former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham. Why is she an example to Christian women? Because of that attitude. She followed her husband in the right way and honored him, calling him Lord. Lord does not mean God. You know, we have Lord this and Lord that all through the British society. It means just the leader, the boss, an honorable term, not, not, not God. Calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you uh, do good and are not afraid with any terror. No, you're to fear, but you're not to have terror. It's a deep respect. Likewise, you husbands dwell with them with understanding. Understand that this woman is a blessing. She's been given to you by God to help you to be your help in the home, to be your mate, to be your lover, your sweetheart, your companion, well, human being who's equal to you are in all those ways to share your plans, your hopes, and your dreams with, and to have one someone you can talk to and share everything with, and that she can help you and encourage you and love you in a way no one else can if she really loves you and you build a good marriage and show appreciation to her. Have understanding of that so that you deeply appreciate her. Well, with them with understanding, giving honor. This young woman was able to come away from her parents or her home and be my wife and be thankful to God for that, you can think, and ask and thank God about that. Well, with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. Of course, she's the weaker vessel. God made a woman with less upper body strength and often less lower body strength too, depending on what you're talking about, and less strength of will, and less strength of certain types of understanding that a man can have more than a woman. And most of you women realize that's not just a Christian doctrine in the Bible. That's the way it works out all over this earth. You just go over the whole earth, places where the Bible is not the main religion at all, to India and China and all these other Oriental countries. They don't follow the Bible but who's in charge? 90% or 
the man is in charge. It just works out. He's stronger. He's able to build the business, conquer the wilderness, you know, take care of the bad guys, take care of the wild animals, and help provide a home for his family. And he has a stronger will and capacity to do that. And so he does do that. That's the way God made us. And most women understand that. But again, I'm saying the obvious, you older ladies, please forgive me. A lot of younger women don't always figure that out. And frankly, some of you young men don't figure that out either. And I'm talking not to you young men here, but you young men in the church all over. Because all over the world, and especially the Western world as we call it, Britain and America, Western Europe and so forth, even the young men have been bombarded by all kinds of, of, of psychology showing that we're all the same and they're not supposed to be the leaders and they're to step aside and let women come in and be the leaders. They're sincere. They just pull back. They don't have the confidence that I'm a man. I better be a man. I'd better be the leader. And the women will appreciate me more if I am the leader. Now, there will be a few women who will not appreciate you more, but you wouldn't want to marry them anyway. That'd be the last ones I would ever want to marry. And most normal men would be that way. So anyway, figure that out, young men, and you young men out there. Try to be the leader. I'd like to write a whole article on that. Dr. O'Neill gave some fine talks on this. I'm going back, I think, 10 or 12 years where he was reading books on the women taking the lead and some of these modern psychologists coming out with all that women's lib stuff, women's lib stuff, putting down the men over and over again. And even women were writing about it and saying it was bad. The men were having their masculinity stripped from them. Because of all this psychology. And of course that's damnable. That's wrong. That will hurt a man's leadership in the marriage. If he's not sure of what he ought to do. He's not sure he ought to be the leader. So dwell with them with understanding. Giving honor to the wife. She's been willing to leave her family to come with you and be your helper. As to the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life. The gift of life. You have a beautiful human being that will share your life with you in a way no other man can do, ought to do, is capable of doing, that your prayers may not be hindered. Certainly you don't want your prayers hindered because you have any wrong attitude about it. Husbands and wives fussing at each other often tears them up because you love your wife so much or your wife, your husband, you can't even pray as well if you know your mate's mad at you. It hurts your attitude even in prayer. It's a very important relationship, and it can hurt even being able to pray to God as you would like to do. I want to read a little bit from a book. If any of you want to imagine, you can get I get no cut on this, by the way. <laughs> this is a book I've had for about 30 or more years. It's called uh, To Understand Each Other. To Understand Each Other, by, written by Dr. Paul uh, Tournier. He's a Swiss doctor and psychologist. A very brilliant man. I've read stuff about him and by him elsewhere and very highly respected. I think he's dead now, but he wrote some very, very thoughtful things. It's a small book. It's easy to go through, and I've always felt it's such a special book. I've kept it for a long, long time and still use it. Just 60, just 63 pages. He's talking here about marriage, and he says in order to escape his, respons his responsibility, each one doing his part in marriage, it is each is inclined, husband and wife, each is inclined to impuse the character of his partner. 
her bad health, her faults, her upbringing, or the influence of the altogether different environment in which she was raised. Now, such matters are very important. We must seek to guide our children in the choice of a fiancé or partner. A certain degree of common background is useful. I pointed that out. God does not condemn you to hell if you marry someone of a different background at all, but it's, it's very helpful in the vast majority of cases, and God shows that. God guided Abraham to send his servants way back to the land he came from to get a wife for Isaac of his own people. Right there, that was an important thing. Example from the father of the faithful. A certain degree of common background is useful. But it would be sure folly to think that marital success and the possibility of full understanding of one another depends primarily upon one's background. No, for marriage is above all what we make of it from day to day. You've got to work at it, no matter what your background. It is a work of art, end quote, as Dr. Lucien Beauvais used to say. Let us react then against the stupid idea of chance, which leads men to imagine that we may have hit upon a, quote, pearl, end quote, for a wife, as one might prize in a lottery. Besides, it would be very difficult to be married to a pearl if you did not feel yourself in the same category as we've kidded the young men. If they work for the, look for the perfect wife, if they found the perfect wife, they'd be in trouble. She might be looking for the perfect husband, so you'd all be in trouble. Anyway, what really counts then is the working out together of marital happiness. It is a goal to strive after, not a privilege gained at the outset, and to work it out, the ability to understand each other. This is his theme all the way through this book. To understand each other is essential. So-called emotional incompatibility is a myth invented by jurists short of arguments in order to plead for a divorce. It is likewise a common excuse people use in order to hide their own failings. I simply do not believe it exists. There are no emotional incompatibilities. There are misunderstandings and mistakes, however, which can be corrected where there, where there is a willingness to do so. The most frequent fault seems to me to be the lack of complete frankness. Get this. I see many couples behind their difficulties, behind, another sentence, behind their difficulties, I always discover the lack of mutual openness a loyal and total openness, a couple who are courageous enough always to say everything will without doubt go through many upsets, but they will be able to build an ever more successful marriage. On the other hand, all dissimulating becomes only the portent of the way toward failure. Many couples no longer realize that they are hiding a part uh, of their real feelings from each other, a part of their ideas, convictions, and personal reactions. Upon entering my office, one husband told me, quite frankly, I certainly talk about everything with my wife. Afterward, he writes, we talk together about many things which would interest him vitally. Then I ask him, what does your wife think of all that? Oh, was his blurted out reply. I would never mention these things to her. She wouldn't understand. <laughs> these are the things he really was interested in. He wouldn't talk to her about it. She wouldn't understand. Well, it is important to try to talk to your husband or wife and let them realize who you are. Think about it, men and women and you young people. If you want to marry someone, don't just have a courtship and kissing or necking in the back seat of a car. 
talk with each other, go on long walks together, stand out under the stars, that's fine, and have moments of intimacy where you, you know, are talking together lovingly, but yet you talk about everything about the world, about world events, about Christianity, the way of life, everything. And you share your plans, your hopes, your dreams. You know what this human being is like. You know how they think, how they will react, what kind of husband they would be, what kind of wife they would be. You need to do that. He goes on and on here, and I better not read too much of this, but it's a very, very good book that spells it out, uh, I think, very more thoroughly in a right way than any book I've ever read. And I hope all of us can do that. So many times in the counseling that I've had over the last 60 years, I've had women tell me more than men. Men are normally the, the strong, silent type. And they, they, the women will tell me, I said, well, what's wrong between you and your husband, Joanne, or whatever her name is? She'll say, well, he just won't talk to me. What do you mean? He won't talk to you at all? Well, he'll, he'll say hello and goodbye, and he'll talk a little bit about the events of the day or or, you know, get, then he get up, gets up and goes over and sits in front of the television and has a beer. And I'm alone all evening, have no one to talk with, and he won't ever talk to me. He won't share with me his plans, his hopes, his dreams, nothing. You've got to learn to share yourself with your wife, fellas. You women have got to learn to share yourself with your husband in that way, in a right way, lovingly. So that you build a relationship and understand each other. That is very, very important. And you need to work on that even during your courtship so you can be sure that you found someone that will follow through on this. And that is a very important part of marriage, sharing your deepest thoughts, your hopes, your dreams, and be sure that you are that way and be sure your mate is that way. Back in Proverbs chapter 6, let's turn back there a moment. Proverbs at this point, and I'm going to turn to chapter 6. And here, God is very plain about things, and we should be too in the right way. He says here in verse 26, Proverbs 6, verse 26, For by means of a harlot, or let's say a cheap woman by means of a harlot or a seducer. A man is seduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent." God is watching. God knows the thoughts and intents of our heart. He does not want us to even start down that road. All you brethren here and your brethren around the world, please understand that. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving, yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. <clears throat> verse 32. Notice this verse especially. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. And the Hebrew word here, as some commentaries say, and one or two translations have it, get this, he who commits adultery with a woman lacks heart. When I got to thinking about that and meditating about that, 
I realize that, that if someone commits adultery with a woman who has a husband and they're in love, he is taking this woman who is this husband's, this husband's lover, sweetheart, his companion, his wife, the mother of his children. He's taking something that is very precious and very beautiful to this other man, and he's dragging that right to a cesspool. He lacks heart. He's simply wrecking the most tender part of that man's life. It's a horrible thing in God's sight to do that, to kind of flirt around with and hang around with and sort of half hug and pretty soon without realizing that you are hugging and you're in each other's arms. Someone who's not your husband or not your wife. Don't do it. Don't start it. He lacks heart. He doesn't realize the depth of the hurt he's caused this other human being or could cause. Wounds dishonor he will get. He's talking about a carnal nation back here now, not in the church, but this is the way most normal real men would react in ages past. His reproach will not be wiped away, for jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, appeased, though you give him many gifts. He is furious. And God says he has a right to be furious. You've taken one of the most precious things, his, his companion, his deepest companion, his wife, who's part of him, his hopes and dreams, and you just brought it right down through a cesspool that will never be the same again. Shame on you if you even think about that kind of thing, men or women. So try not to ever react that way, brethren. God does not want that. He hates that. He hates divorce, as we read back in Malachi chapter 2. Turn now, in a more positive note, to Psalm 128. Psalm 128. Here is one of the songs that we sing in church. Psalm 128, verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears, has this awe of the ever-living one of God, who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with your. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine. She'll bring forth children for you. You'll have people sitting around your table. You'll have a family atmosphere. I've been in big families, and sometimes some of them have had a wonderful atmosphere. The children are loving and kidding and hugging one another, and the father and mother sitting together and kind of kidding around. It's a very wonderful thing to see, a really big, happy family. Your children are like olive plants all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the ever-living one. So if you really fear God, have the awe of God and work on it, you can build this kind of family. It may not be perfect every day and every year and all that, but you could build that atmosphere in your family. And that's a wonderful thing. And that's what God Almighty wants. When Jacob got ready to die, he had that kind of family, but a limited way. Of course, some of his children didn't turn out the best, but he caught all of his sons and got them all around there in the bedroom, I guess. He said, well, Reuben, this is going to happen to you and Levi and Judah and you guys carry on, and I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to leave. <laughs> you take care of things. He got them all together, his sons, and told them what was ahead. And you ought to have that kind of attitude. You're going to build a family that will be with you until death does you part. And your wife and you have built a family. You've built a structure. 
and by learning a family atmosphere that you love your wife and she loves you and the children see that stability, that loyalty, that constant affection and love back and forth, they learn that way of life. And then when they're married, hopefully they will practice that way of life and they can then carry that on. That builds a right society and that way of life then carries right on over into God's kingdom. That's what God wants us all to do. I've never done it perfectly. None of you have ever done it perfectly, but most of us have tried. And to the degree we've tried and had God's blessing, we can have that kind of family. And God wants that. That is the ideal. So let's think about it. You're to build a family because God himself is building a family of people that love each other, respect each other, can work together, play together, laugh together in the fear of God, the awe that you together, all of us together, have a great father. This is Father's Day, or tomorrow is Father's Day, and God is our Father, and He will always take care of us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He wants us to be part of His family. He is the ultimate Father. All right? Building a family and having this kind of family, brethren, is a training ground to be kings and priests. As God watches how you do with your family, He's seeing then how you might do with a village or a city or a whole nation in tomorrow's world. Can you love your children? Can you teach them, train them, and yet be patient with them, be kind with them, balanced, not strict, strict, strict all the time, got you here, got you there, but loving to them, and they know you love them, and you're not trying to catch them, you're trying to build them and try to prepare them for eternity, and then you can carry over that attitude right on into God's government and rule over five cities or ten cities because you've shown that to a degree at least in your family today. That's very, very important. That is what God wants. Now let's turn back to the New Testament one final time here, and I want to turn with you to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Most of you know what this is. The family is the best place to learn to practice 1 Corinthians 13. There's no better place. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become as a sounding brass or clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, I've got my chronology and I know all the dates when Christ is going to come. Paul says, so what? You may know all this stuff. It's not going to do you any good unless you have genuine love and outflowing concern for other human beings who are trying to help them, to serve them. And that is your motive, not to show yourself superior, not to catch them, not to put them down, not to argue with them, but to build them and help them. You have genuine outflowing concern. So I have all this and have not love. I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor... We've had people in the world who've done that. Stanley went off to seek Dr. Livingston in darkest Africa, and he found him, you know, in the clearing there. And you all know the story about that, how those things, some of these old English missionaries went way off. And some of them gave their lives. Well, some of them were frustrated at home, too. I've read the stories about them. They wanted to get away from home. That's one reason some of them went away. But they would try to lay down their lives out there in certain ways, but if you do it and don't really have the right attitude and love, it doesn't do any good as God shows. You have nothing. Love suffers long. It doesn't immediately blow up. 
Some of you women say, I can't follow my husband because he's not perfect. Of course he's not perfect. Nobody's perfect. There's only been one perfect husband in all the universe. His name is Jesus Christ, and we will be marrying him soon, hopefully. If we're there, if we can become the right bride, we won't be the perfect bride, but we can be a pure bride at least, ready for him. Love suffers long. Love puts up with a lot and is kind Do that to your mate. Be kind to them, not putting them down or catching them and arguing with them. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, trying to constantly show off. Do you know who's in charge here? We used to have super deacons in the church who would make old ladies move their cars in the parking lot if they didn't park in the right. I'm a deacon. So what? Your job as a deacon is to serve. My job as an evangelist is to serve. Doesn't make any who you are. If you're Mr. Armstrong, an apostle, your job is to serve, to give, to help. Sometimes us ministers can serve you better by correcting you, exhorting you, helping you learn the truth. But our attitude should be to generally help you make it into God's kingdom, to fulfill the purpose for which God has given you life and breath. So we've got to be sure that's our basic attitude in everything we, we do. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. That is perhaps the key verse in the Bible in this chapter. Love does not seek its own. If you're constantly seeking your own, what can I get out of this? How can I show off? How can I, how can I? You see, don't do that. If you're thinking, how can I give? How can I give to my wife? How can I give to my husband? How can I give to these other human beings? How can I give to the church? How can I give to God? To give my life to God and fulfill His will in my life. Love does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Love doesn't get upset real easily. Love thinks no evil, or as it says in the margin, keeps no account of evil. Some people have a physical or mental little black book, and they remember every bad thing someone does. I remember one of our pastor-ranked ministers back in Worldwide had a literal little black book. It was a book. It was a little book he had right here in his vest. And a few times when he was working directly with me, I didn't work with him directly a lot. Once in a while I did in the terrible crisis of 49. He literally would pull out the book and he would tell me about, well, this evangelist children, this girl had abortion and this woman ran off and this boy got into this sex thing and this young man's a drunkard. He knew all the bad stuff about everybody. And after hearing that for a few times, I thought, oh, oh, I better watch out for this guy. He's going to find out everything I've done wrong and put that in his black book. And he'll be telling that to others later on. He's a mess, an absolute mess. He later went nuts and left the church and then he died. He's not around now. But at any rate, it was a terrible thing. A little black book keeping a record of other people's sins. Don't do that. The one who has love does not rejoice in iniquity. He's not trying to find out people's faults and be delighted to find out other people's mistakes, but rejoices in the truth. He's happy about things that are good, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Very patient and kind. Love never fails. Love doesn't give up real easily because it doesn't have this self-image all the time it's trying to affect. It's trying to help other human beings. And in marriage, 
getting it back to that basic relationship, you're trying to say, how much can I give to my wife? How much can I give to my husband? How much can I give to the family? Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. It doesn't mean God's word will fail, but they'll run out. There'll be the time when all prophecies are done. Then where are you? You can't worry about the dates anymore. Your chronological charts don't have any meaning. It's all done. That's what it's talking about. Prophecies will end. They'll come to an end. Tongues will cease. Whether they're knowledge, it will vanish away. How can knowledge vanish away? Does God want us all stupid? No, that's not what it's talking about. All the things we think of as knowledge today won't be there. Two and two won't equal four because there won't even be those words. We'll have a different language and two will be a different, you know, the same basic principles will be in the world, I suppose, but it's thought of in a different way, maybe even in different languages. New York will no longer be the biggest city in America because America will probably have different cities once the big blow-ups are occurred and God will shake every island and every mountain out of its place and our major cities may be bombed out of existence. We won't be talking about different parts of New York City or San Francisco or all kinds of other things. We won't be talking about the television programs we're talking about today. They won't be here anymore. They'll all be done. We'll be in a different sphere, a different level, a different dimension of human existence. That's knowledge we have that will vanish away. So don't get excited about those things. Get excited about the way of God that will last forever. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. We only know little bits and pieces. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Little boys think of certain things, and then as you get bigger, you just don't think that way anymore. I remember back in Joplin, Missouri, while we used to have our argument of thinking we're going to beat up those guys in Columbia School. But pretty soon Columbia School merged with West Central School that I was in all together in North Junior High. So then we were all together. Our whole attitude changed. We became friends real quick, as little kids do. Then it's get south high, be south junior high and east junior high. Then we all came together in the same high school. And then your attitude changed. We're all friends. And then Joplin used to play the Thanksgiving football game against Springfield. Get Springfield. I remember kidding the brethren back in Springfield when I used to preach. I'd say, well, I used to be against you guys because we were in Joplin. <laughs> now you're the only church in Missouri, the one of the first churches in Missouri, and I was there to preach to them. Of course, they laughed. Your whole attitude changes. We're Americans, you know, and we're against the Japanese or we're against the Germans or we're against the Russians. No, we're all human beings. And we're not going to be against anybody pretty soon. We won't hate anybody. We'll all be human beings made in the image of God. And pretty soon we won't even be male and female. We are now, as I said, we should respect that difference and appreciate it too and be grateful. That makes life more fun, more exciting that we can have a mate and have that kind of change and, and, and difference between us. But finally, we'll all be spirit beings in God's kingdom, a different dimension of understanding. So we'll put away childish things, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known, or as the Revised Standard has that I like that translation just better for me. Then shall I understand as I am understood. We will really understand. I will. Why did God let Jimmy die? 
Why did God let Dick Armstrong die? Why did God let Margie die? Why did God let Mrs. Lowe die? Most of us know that. We don't all live to be exactly 70. But if things we don't fully understand, we hope we can understand all the background of it. And we can love our husband. We can love our wife while he's here and while we're here. And love each other in God's church and the extended family we have here while we're here. And have God's mind and love one another. Love one another and build the church family. Build our individual families God's way. And forgive each other, help each other, love each other. Love never fails. And now abide faith, hope, and love. Absolute trust in God. Boy, he speaks of that all the way through the Bible. We will be blessed because they trusted in God, it says over and over. Read the Psalms. Faith, hope, that positive attitude, knowing God is there, all things will work for good in the end, and love. Worship and adoration for God, our Father, who made us and is working with us to make us his full sons. And love and kindness and outflowing concern for one another, our fellow human beings. Faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And marriage and the lessons we learn in marriage and the opportunities we have in marriage and with children, family, building a family through a marriage. That's one of the best places we can learn love. So let's build our families in love and do it God's way and have the fear of God never to let anything turn us aside from that or to interfere with the institution of marriage, which pictures the everlasting relationship, the loyal relationship of Jesus Christ and the true church.